I want you to remember that God, God's created everything you see. He breathed it into existence. You remember when his people were caught up in slavery? He rescued them. What he did was he parted the sea and he made a way for them and then he delivered their enemies to them and he unlocks wounds and he provides water from a rock and he provides manna from heaven and he brought down the walls of Jericho. He froze the sun allowing victory. He's toppled giants with tiny stones. He's brought fire from heaven. He shut the mouths of lions. He preserved life in the belly of a well. He's fed thousands with a few loaves. He gives the weak strength. He heals the sick. He's made the blind see, the deaf ear, the mute speak, the lame walk, and he's overcome evil, and he's made a way through death for you and me by the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, that we will live with him forever. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. What are we afraid of? His resume is flawless. He controls everything. And he loves you. What are we afraid of? Uh, Today we continue our In the Wilderness series uh, that we've been doing this fall with fear in the wilderness. Now next Sunday I'm going to preach my favorite sermon of 2021. Uh, favorite sermon maybe of the last uh, couple of years. And I hope that you'll do everything you can uh, to watch uh, here online or be at church in person uh, next Sunday. As a matter of fact, I want you to hear this sermon uh, so, so badly that I convinced the United States government to turn the clocks back next Sunday morning at 2 a.m., Uh, to give you an extra hour of sleep or an extra hour to get ready uh, to watch or to get uh, here to church, just to make sure, uh, because next Sunday is going to be such an important message. Now, last Sunday, we talked about how uh, we're more vulnerable to certain things when we're in the wilderness, things like complaining that we've talked about in this series or comparisons, uh, or even as we talked about last Sunday, uh, feeling like you're being cursed by a certain situation or even by another person. And today is one of those things. We're more vulnerable to fear when we're in the wilderness. Uh, You know, people have said so many great things about fear that I want to give you 10 of my favorite uh, quotes on fear. Uh, Taylor Swift said, I think fearless is having fears, but jumping anyway. Helen Keller uh, said, avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. The fearful are caught as often as the bold. Louisa May Alcott writes, I'm not afraid of storms, for I'm learning how to sail my ship. I love this one by Bruce Lee. He says, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. But you know, I really do wonder, even if I practice one kick 10,000 times, Would Bruce Lee really have ever been afraid of me? (laughs) Marcus Aurelius, it is not death that a man should fear, but he should fear never beginning to live. Nelson Mandela writes, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. 
The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Now, I love this quote by Kobe Bryant. He says, I have self-doubt. I have insecurity. I have fear of failure. I have nights when I show up at the arena and I'm like, my back hurts. My feet hurt. My knees hurt. I, I just don't have it. I just want to chill. We all have self-doubt. You don't deny it, but you also don't capitulate to it. You embrace it. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal uh, writes, every journey starts with fear. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, you gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You're able to say to yourself, I live through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. And then Babe Ruth said, never let the fear of striking out get in, in your way. Uh, today, we're going to talk about one generation of Israelites missing out on the promised land because of fear. A whole generation of the nation of Israel missed out on the promised land because of fear. Now, to make this practical, I, I want you to ask yourself the question. I'll ask myself the question. What is the promised land that you're afraid to enter? What's the thing God is asking you to do or an area of obedience in your Christian life? Uh, or maybe you've never chosen to follow Christ and that's your promised land and you're afraid about the changes that will happen in your life if you take that step. Uh, what, is, what is your promised land? What is the thing that you believe God wants you to do, is asking you to do, maybe even commanding you to do? Uh, what's that promised land that fear is keeping you from entering? And as we look at the story of the nation of Israel, ask yourself the question, am I guilty of letting fear get in the way of grabbing hold of everything God wants me to get a hold of in my life? Is fear stopping me from area of life, which is the promised land that God wants me to enter? I was reading the other day uh, through the top 100 phobia list. Does anybody want to guess what the number one fear right there in your living room or, 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 or watching um, from your computer, maybe you're listening later in the car, what do you think the number one fear of human beings is? Well, here it is. Number one fear is arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Now, I'll admit to you, I, I really am not that afraid of spiders, but number two on the list, that's what I'm afraid of. Ophidiophobia, which is the fear of snakes. That's, that's one that I'm afraid of. And also a little bit, number three on the list, acrophobia, which is the fear of heights. And then one, especially for today, Halloween, uh, sowinphobia, is the fear of Halloween. But let's look at some of the fears in this top 100 phobia list that kept the Israelites and us uh, from reaching our promised land. It kept the Israelites from reaching the promised land, and it'll keep us from reaching our promised land. Number 15 on the list is atechophobia, which is the fear of failure, number 15. Number 27 on the list is xenophobia, the fear of the unknown. Achievemophobia, uh, number 30 on the list, the fear of success. Actually, sometimes we're afraid of success. Number three, 33 on the, the list, metathesophobia, 
which is the fear of change. And then number 85 on the list, chronophobia, which is the fear of the future. Now, I was thinking about this with regard to our church celebrating 150th, now our 151st, almost our 152nd year with this degree of effectiveness. You've heard me talk about that many times. And, and the key to our success to achieving this milestone with this degree of effectiveness has been the ability to overcome these fears. Like if we go back one, uh, particularly the, the fear of change. If we go back to number 33, metathophobia. Uh, Hope I'm getting that right. You're doing a better job of it I, than I am, I bet. The fear of change. Um, churches that fear change uh, never adjust to reach the next generation. And, and that has been the thing that in the history of our church, we have overcome the fear of change to make the necessary adjustments to reach the next generation for Christ and the next generation. And churches that let the fear of change keep them from making those adjustments, uh, they either die, uh, eventually go away completely, or they wither away and they're a shadow of their former selves. And I praise God for part of our DNA as a church is to not give in to the fear of change. To make those changes, to reach each subsequent generation for Christ. And as a result, here we are, 151 years later, after starting in 1870, still reaching new generations for Christ. Why? Because we have overcome the fear of change. So let's look at the story of the Israelites and their fear in the wilderness. Uh, they are, when we come to them in the story here, they are all set to enter into the promised land. They are poised uh, on the promised land. They're about to enter into it. They are ready to go. So first comes the evaluation. They want to check it out. So it says in Numbers 13, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And here's a map of the route that the uh, spies took. Uh, they started down here where they were camped and they, they, they set the spies up and they went through the entire land all the way up here. Um, here's the Sea of Galilee and, and they go beyond that and uh, along the Jordan all the way up here. And then they make their way back down uh, once again to give their report. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak or few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best. And in the original Hebrew, I think this is too weak of a translation here. It, it literally in the Hebrew is show yourself courageous that have, have courage enough to bring back some of the fruit of the land, to take some of the fruit and to bring it back. And that would take courage for them to do that rather than hiding out in secret. They'd have to go out in the open to get some of this fruit and bring it back. And so instead of just do your best, show yourself courageous. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. And then next comes the examination of what they found, uh, starting with verse 23. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, 
they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them. Now, can you imagine the size of that cluster of grapes? It was so big they had to stick it on a pole and two of them, it took two of them to carry the cluster between them. Can you imagine how huge that was? Along with some pomegranates and along with some figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol. Eshkol in the Hebrew means cluster. Uh, and it's because of the cluster of grapes that the Israelites had uh, cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Now, with this amazing fruit that they found, they would have thought that they had discovered the Garden of Eden or California. You know how I've told you how California and Israel are so similar uh, to each other. It's amazing. They're, they're basically um, the, the same latitude. And, and, and so what we see in California is very similar to what they see in, 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 um, in Israel. They're both agricultural powers. Israel is to Europe what California is to North America. And, and kind of the bread basket that produces all this fruit that goes out. Uh, we know that as Californians. They know it today in the nation of Israel. And they would have thought that they had discovered the Garden of Eden when they saw this. As a matter of fact, uh, the state of Israel uh, uses the logo of the two spies. See the two spies here uh, carrying a huge cluster of grapes on a pole. And they use this as a symbol of the Department of Tourism uh, in Israel. And another little interesting fact is we don't know which two spies uh, carried the pole that carried the grapes, but the, the Department of Tourism for Israel, they call them Caleb and Joshua. And we're going to see why that's appropriate in, in, in just a moment. So here's Caleb and Joshua uh, carrying this cluster of grapes. Well, that leads to the good report. In Numbers 13, verse 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron. And the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Let's just hold it there on that verse uh, for a moment. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And you know that phrase it does flow with milk and honey. Moses' heart must have leaped within him when he heard that phrase. Why? Because that phrase was used by God when he talked to Moses from the burning, bur book, burning bush. Um, God was the first one that coined that phrase. And he said, I'm going to take you. Uh, he talked to Moses from the burning bush. He says, I'm going to have you go to Egypt and you're going to rescue the people and lead them out of Israel and through the wilderness to a land with milk and honey. And so I'm sure Moses had repeated that story to the Israelites so that the spies knew that phrase. And they come back and say, it does indeed flow with milk and honey. It is prosperous. It is productive. It is a wonderful land. They gave a good report. But now comes the but. The but comes with the bad report. Uh, the bad report is next, picking it up with verse 28. But, wonderful land, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. 
The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Now, all of a sudden, the humongous size of that great cluster now becomes ominous. Now, all of a sudden, uh, they no longer looked at that cluster, which was so huge that it was strange to them. It was something they had never encountered before. And the first time they saw it, it looked like plenty. It was, it was no longer did it point to a, a land of milk and honey, a land of great fruit, a land of plenty. But now it, it looked ominous to them, that cluster of grapes. It reminded them that there was a people who would defend that plenty. See, at first they looked at it and said, oh my goodness, we, we get to have that land. But now they look at it and they say, oh, wow. That means there's people that will defend that plenty. Uh, it no longer pointed to joy, but to fear. Uh, it's kind of like here, Pastor Greg. Uh, Pastor Greg is six feet, six inches. He's the tallest member of our staff. And here are Pastor Greg's shoes. And so if you were checking out the promised land and you found these shoes, the first thing you'd say to yourself is, oh, wow, the land is so productive that our children will be so well-fed they will grow into the shoes like this. But now with the negative report, the bad report, now they look at these shoes and say, oh, wow, these shoes will be worn by people who will defend that land. How in the world? Uh, can we conquer them? How can we uh, defeat them? Uh, so this bad report comes. But Caleb, verse 30, continuing on, then Caleb silenced the people. He had to silence them because there must have been this explosion of, of hubbub and, and fear and terror. And so he quiets them down before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly, we can do it. But the men who had gone up with him, okay, the other 10, there's Joshua and Caleb uh, against the whole nation, standing by themselves, Moses, Aaron, uh, Joshua, Caleb, the four against the whole nation, and against the other 10 spies. The men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. And they spread among them a bad report. Moving um, uh, to uh, the next verses. Uh, it reminds us when it says uh, of this whole devouring and of great size and the negativity that they spread among the nation of Israel. Uh, here's just a warning uh, to us, to me, to you. Be very careful about your negativity squelching what God has called someone else to do. Be very, very careful when God has called someone, um, your children, your grandchildren, a friend of yours, uh, somebody here at church, God's called them to do something. And be very careful that like these 10 spies, your negativity does not squelch what God has called someone else to do or even what he's called our church to do. Uh, how, how many times have, have we wanted to launch on something as a church and, and sometimes there's a danger of negativity keeping us from doing that thing that God has called on us to do. So be very careful 
about your negativity squelching what God has called someone else to do or even what he has called our church to do. Um, we have a list in our church for our staff of our 10 cultural values uh, for our church uh, staff and leadership uh, here at Purpose Church. And they're things like only God can, lead with compassion, side by side, champion innovation and excellence, always growing, fearless honesty, make it fun, diverse and unified, own the vision. But the fourth one on this list of 10 of our culture values for our staff is start with yes. And ask the question, how am I leading and responding with positive solutions? And then it gives a further explanation. Start with yes. When someone comes to us with a question or an idea, we will lead with positive solutions of what we can do rather than shutting them down or out by leading with what we cannot do. This does not mean we're to say yes to every idea or proposal. When we do have to say no, we are to do this with positivity, gentleness, and respect. And so sometimes we have to say no uh, to a new idea. Sometimes it's impractical or, or, or it's not God's plan for us. But we're to lead with yes. And I thought about that with myself, that when God asks me to do something, do I lead with yes? When God commands me to do something, do I lead with yes? Or do I lead with no and say, no, I'm going to do that. And, and God has to convince me to obey. Uh, do, do, do we lead with, with yes? Do we encourage each other? And sometimes you have to say no to something. Or sometimes we can't do something as a church. But, but do we lead by faith? Do we lead in our obedience to God? Do, do we lead with yes? And here these 10 spies, they gave a bad report. They led with no. And that infected the nation of Israel to kept the, keep them from doing what God had called them and commanded them to do. It led to a lack of perspective. It says in, in verse 33, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Here it is. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. This is what we call the grasshopper syndrome. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, especially it happens on social media, but it happens in all areas of our life where we compare our insides, our weaknesses, our flaws, our faults, our insides to somebody else's outsides. I mean, everybody from a distance, looks like they got their life more together than we do. They look more powerful than we do. They look stronger than we do. We compare our insides, the, the negative things about us, the flaws and faults and weaknesses that we know to be true, to somebody else's outsides that look so airbrushed and so polished, especially this happens on social media. It leads to discouragement. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how we compare ourselves and they look so strong and we look so weak by comparison. Well, this is the grasshopper syndrome. It, way before social media, it's been there, but it's certainly true on social media. You look on social media and we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes compared to what we see there and we look the same, we're convinced that we look the same to them. Or what we call, what I call the worship phenomenon. One of the reasons I love going to church is because when I walk into a church service, uh, my problems seem this big 
and God seems small by comparison. Big problems, little God. But as I begin to worship God, as I begin to, to sing the songs of worship to Him, as, I, as we study God's Word together, as we look into God's Word, read the Bible on a daily basis, all of a sudden our problems get smaller because our view of God gets bigger. And so until we encounter God's Word, until we encounter Him in worship, big problems, little God, after a time of worship or a time in God's Word, big God, little problem by comparison. And now for the nation of Israel, fear completely takes over. Uh, Numbers 14, starting in verse 1, that night all the members of the community uh, raised their voices and wept aloud. Uh, All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in, in Egypt or in this wilderness. Now think about that. Think about how fear makes us crazy. If only we had died in Egypt or died here in the wilderness. Um, Verse three, going on to verse three. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. This is the thing we're gonna see that really made God angry. That they would dare to say that God brought the the children, the next generation out there just to kill them. Would it be better for us to be back in in Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Uh, Nobody here talks about God's power with the 10 plagues of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea while destroying the greatest superpower in the world. Uh, God had already defeated a nation much more powerful than these petty little city-states that they had to conquer in order to to take over the promised land. Nobody remembered the miracles in the wilderness, the thunder of Mount Sinai, the fire of God, the bread from heaven, the water from a gushing rock. A fear makes us lose our minds. Literally. They, they, They go crazy here. Fear makes us lose our perspective and then lose our minds. Slavery began to look good to them. The hovels that they lived in in Egypt, they wanted to make that their home again. President Franklin Roosevelt in the middle of the Great Depression said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself because fear makes us lose all perspective and, 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 and just makes us crazy. But now, I tend to be judgmental of the Israelites, but how many times have I let fear rule my decisions? How many times has God called me to do something and fear has distorted that situation so that I refuse to obey God? How many times do I forget what God has done in my past as I look at what he wants me to do in my future and I realize I'm no different than those Israelites? Fear gets a hold of me. And, again, and I forget what God has done in the past. And, and I begin to think that the problem I face is bigger than God. That the promised land he wants me to take, I, I, I can't take it. Because that which defends it is bigger than my God. Uh, this generation of Israelites who wish that they had died in the desert is going to find out that that's exactly what they're going to have to do. This is almost like self-fulfilling prophecy. They said, we're going to die in the desert. So God says, okay. Let's, let, let's make that happen. And, and like I said, the part that made God the angriest 
is that they said about the next generation, their children would become plunder. And so God is going to have that generation of their children, they're going to have the parents' generation, everybody over the age of 20 is going to die off in the wilderness over the next 40 years, and that next generation that they had said, they're going to become plunder to our enemies. That generation under, under Joshua and Caleb's leadership is going to go on 40 years later to take over the promised land. Now, some people were still fearless and didn't go along with the crowd. There were four people that stood up against the whole nation, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. They were the fearless, picking it up with verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes in, in grief at what was happening and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly, exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. They won't devour us. We will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then, all of a sudden, in the middle of all this, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have performed among them? And now comes the punishment. Verse 22, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But then the reward for those that did believe, uh, verse 24, but... Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. Oh, Lord, help, help me to be like Caleb. I pray that you'll be like Caleb. I pray that our church will be like Caleb. Oh, God, help us like, he says he's my servant. My servant Caleb, he has a different spirit and he follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him and Joshua, he's going to mention in a moment, into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Now watch with the remaining verses that we have, this wrestling between faith and fear in, in the wilderness. Verse 26, uh, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land that I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of none. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you've rejected. But as for you, 
Your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. Our unfaithfulness not only affects us, but affects other people as well. And their children would not immediately go into the promised land. Now, eventually their children would, but they would have to suffer for 40 years. It would have to be delayed until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in the wilderness. There they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, uh, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him, the, that is the 10 spies that gave the bad report, by spreading a bad report uh, about it, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. They died immediately. The other Israelites would die over naturally over the next 40 years, but those 10 um, died immediately. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh uh, survived. Now, here's the happy ending. Forty years later, these two men, Joshua and Caleb, forty years later, these two men led that next generation, that younger generation, into the promised land. But the current generation missed out because of their fear. Now, I want you to think about your promised land that I had you think about at the beginning. Remember that? What's that thing God's asking me to do or you to do? or our church to do? What's, what's that area? What, what's that thing that God is calling us to do? That, that promised land that he wants us to take. Oh, by the grace of God, will we have courage like Caleb and Joshua and not be ruled by fear like the rest of the nation of Israel? Could I pray with you right now about whatever it is that you thought about at the beginning of this message? Lord, right now, all of our promised lands that we thought about at the beginning of, of this time. Right now, we place them before you. I place mine before you and my church family. Uh, each of them places it before you as well. Uh, maybe it's to take the step to follow Jesus. Maybe there's somebody listening or watching right now. And the thing you've been afraid to take is to follow Jesus. You think, oh, it's going to cause such changes in my life or there's going to be things I'm going to have to give up or I, I, I don't know that I want to repent and follow Jesus. This could be your moment right now. Just call on the name of, of Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't want fear of what that will mean to keep me from that promised land, uh, that, that life you've called for me to live and that eternity in heaven. Right now, Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior and I want to follow you. Or if you've already decided to follow Jesus, what is that other area right now? Oh, oh, oh God, uh, we don't want to be like the nation of Israel. We want to be like Caleb and Joshua. Uh, and, and so we, we put our fears to the side and we uh, want to follow you and obey you in this area. Help us to do that because we know that you, God, are more than enough for us to conquer our promised land.
You are more than enough yesterday. You are more than enough today. And you are more than enough for tomorrow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, Amen. In the midst of uncertainty, our faith can struggle. Our walk becomes labored, our heart heavy. There's something about the unknown which seems to weaken us. It drains our patience and blurs our focus. Yet in the middle of everything stands a faithful God. A God who's not swayed by the struggle, who isn't moved by the winds of chaos. A God who remains faithful even when our faith is fragile. It seems more difficult than ever to not worry about tomorrow. Yet that's exactly what God has asked us to do. For when we cast our burdens on Him, the troubles of the moment begin to fade. When we trust the plans he has for us, our fear begins to subside. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our focus becomes consumed by clarity. Yes, we are in the midst of uncertainty, but we can be certain of one thing. God is faithful. And that is more than enough for tomorrow.